have a special presentation, the young Texas Bell who wore your Viva bracelet all of while you were away. Miss Linda Porsche. Linda? Major, I've been looking forward to the day that I'd be giving this back to you. Thank you very much. And Grimm's department store would like to present you with a token of our respect, admiration, and hope for the future. One silver dollar for every day you were in Hanoi's hellhole. That amounts to a grand total of $2,555. Oh, and one for good luck. Thank you very much. What are you going to do for those silver dollars? Oh, I guess I'll take them home and hide them. Welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, this is a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review. We are continuing on our month-long theme, Best Served Cold. That's our selection of some amazing and oh-so-satisfying revenge films, sure to please all of you who can relish some carefully planned vengeance. This week, we are trucking along with John Flynn's 1977 revenge classic, Rolling Thunder. Join us! This week's film was one that I spent a number of years hunting down. But in reality, I only got to see it when I finally had a made-to-order copy burned for me back in 2011. It was always something that was so frustrating because I would stumble across many things that referenced it or made inferences to it, but I was never able to see it myself. Now, once I got that copy, sat down and watched it, I will say I did love it. I thought the performances were great. The story itself kind of run-of-the-mill, but serviceable. And what I was left with was this rather satisfying and explosive bit of bloody revenge exploitation that came from the mind of a man who's actually rather good at delving into the seedier side of things, and one who I was quite familiar with at the time. 
So to kick things off here, we're going to have to talk about Rolling Thunder. And to do that, we're first going to have to say a few words about the man who wrote the story. Writer, director, Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader is a legend in Hollywood. And interestingly, he is perpetually drawn to the seedier side, the grime and sleaze of everyday society, which is a rather interesting commentary on his upbringing. Born July 22, 1946, to Joan and Charles Schrader, young Paul was raised in a strict, fundamentalist, Calvinist home in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This meant Schrader's early life was rather stark and sheltered. His family did not believe in partaking of the worldly pleasures of society. So, smoking, drinking, dancing, television, film, all of these were denied to him. Honestly, if you've ever seen Schrader's 1979 film Hardcore, that's a future episode for sure, he is essentially there recreating his childhood, and he basically cast George C. Scott, his role as his father. He had to sneak out to view his first movie when he was in high school, and unfortunately for him, it was the Fred McMurray Disney classic The Absent-Minded Professor, which, here, sidebar, for the record, that is not a bad film. I am not at all impugning The Absent-Minded Professor. It's a fun, cute movie. But I can understand Schrader's reaction. You go your whole life not seeing movies, and here you are, you're 14 or 15, you sneak out, and you're left with this reaction. This is what people are paying to watch? All of that would change, though, as the young man would continue to sneak out and see more films, and he started to learn to love them. He would go on and earn a BA in philosophy at Calvin College, which was a seminary school in Grand Rapids, where he had first flirted with the notion of becoming a minister, but he just found himself too interested in the concept of storytelling, seemingly to the great disappointment of his very conservative parents. Going all in, he decided to marry his college sweetheart, Janine Openwall, and in 1969, he decided to continue his education out in California, attending UCLA Film School, where he earned his MA in Film Studies. It's here he would meet with those who would become his peers in the industry. Filmmakers like John Milius, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese. And it's also here where he would meet his first real mentor, film critic Pauline Kael, who encouraged him to write. This led to him becoming a film critic with the Los Angeles Free Press, also known as The Freep, and it also allowed him to go on to write and publish his own book on film in 1972, Transcendental Style in Film, Ozu Bresson Dreyer. And all of them were directors who would have a major effect on Schrader once he himself got behind the camera. Schrader, at this time, also got really, really into cocaine and drinking, as well as partying, you know, being part of the Hollywood scene. It would ultimately go on to destroy his first marriage, although he would not officially divorce Openwell until 1976. Schrader found himself partying throughout the early to mid-70s, waking up on many an acquaintance's couch. 
During this time, he started working on the script that would get him known. A little story about a Vietnam War vet who comes home with PTSD and who decides to take a night job, driving a cab to deal with his insomnia. And that would eventually become Martin Scorsese's 1976 Taxi Driver. To pay the bills, he teamed up with his older brother, Leonard Schrader, and wrote a marvelous little B-film that masquerades as a mainstream picture, and also will be a future episode for sure, Sidney Pollock's 1974 classic, The Yakuza, with the great Robert Mitchum. The film didn't do so hot in the box office, but the brothers saw a payday, and Schrader was starting to pick up steam. You see, opportunities lead to other opportunities, and that would let him go on to write 1976's Obsession for director Brian De Palma. He drafted an early but ultimately rejected version of Close Encounters of the Third Kind for Steven Spielberg. Uh, Shockingly, Spielberg found it a little too intense. And of course, Schrader penned, during this time, the screenplay for this week's film, Rolling Thunder. Now, when it came time to actually get made, Rolling Thunder had a rather strange journey. The film was, supposedly, and I say that because at this point, this is totally apocryphal. I am retelling something that has been told secondhand by director Quentin Tarantino. He stated that director John Milius told him that Schrader wrote the story to be a vehicle for Milius to direct. The latter ended up turning it down, finding the subject matter to be too dark, but he was still very supportive of it. Now, Rolling Thunder itself is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite films. He named his video production company Rolling Thunder Pictures after it, and I'm in no way accusing the man of being a liar here. My point is, I can't find any hard quotes or interviews that actually confirm this, therefore it is going to be deemed apocryphal. Still. This was a picture that was floating around in the early 70s, and Hollywood was looking for something big, the next big thing, and it wound up on the desk of Lawrence Gordon, action producer extraordinaire. You may or may not know his name, but you've definitely seen a Lawrence Gordon picture, because Gordon over the years has created some of the biggest action films in history, working with a bunch of little-known stuff like Dillinger, The Warriors, 48 Hours, Die Hard, Predator, Field of Dreams, The Rocketeer, Waterworld, Boogie Nights, Hellboy, The Watchmen. And that's me just going through and naming every third or fourth movie in his filmography. Gordon was, at the time, handling production work over at American International Pictures under the presidency of Samuel Z. Arkoff. And this fit the bill to a T of what AIP were putting out exploitation-wise for the day. It was perfectly able to be shuffled into the infamous Arkoff formula. Action, revolution, killing, oratory, fantasy, fornication. Arkoff. All of the good stuff that young people were going into the theaters to sit through and see with their low-budget offering. Gordon liked the script so much that when he left AIP to take a position over as a semi-independent producer with Columbia, he took the project with him. And for a time, he started telling Schrader that he would like him to direct the project himself. 
Gordon, though, got sidetracked when he went to work on the film Hard Times and made it with Walter Hill in 1975. And during that time, Columbia cooled on the idea of getting Rolling Thunder made. So, once again, Gordon took the property and shopped it around Hollywood, where it was then snapped up by 20th Century Fox Films. Now, Fox wanted some assurances, because to them, this smelled like it could be a controversial picture. It pushed the envelope on violence, it featured a returning Vietnam POW who comes home to his family, only to have them murdered before him, and thus find himself on a bloody path of revenge. That seems a little dicey, needs to be handled properly. No, you can't have Schrader do this, we need a seasoned director who's used to working with low budget and still get the job done. And so, John Flynn was brought in to direct the picture. Now, at this time, Flynn had already made his bones directing films like 1972's The Jerusalem File, and in a callback to our subject matter last week, he directed the 1973 adaptation of Donald Westlake's Parker novel, The Outfit, starring Robert Duvall and Joe Don Baker. So, to his credit, the guy had chops. They brought in author Haywood Gould to do a rewrite and touch-up Schrader's initial script. And then, from there, it was off to the races. Fox thought that this would be the perfect, low-budget action film to showcase some of their hot new talent they had acquired. What better time to have an up-and-coming actor get their first lead role in a major motion picture? And thus we have William Devane enter the scene. Now, Devane at this time was already a respected stage actor. He had had some minor parts in television of the late 1960s, but in 1974, Devane's real big break came in the form of a made-for-TV film, The Missiles of October, where he managed to snag the role of John F. Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, starring opposite Martin Sheen, who played Robert Kennedy. And he only got that after Hal Holbrook dropped out of the project. The docudrama would go on to win an Emmy that following year, and that got Devane noticed. Many folks remember him for the decade he spent on the Dallas spinoff, Knott's Landing. He was in the role of Greg Sumner, the shady politician. Rolling Thunder was going to be Devane's big screen vehicle. This would see him play the role of Major Charles Rain, and to his credit, Devane thought the script was really great. A young Tommy Lee Jones also was cast here as Sergeant Johnny Voden, a young man who was a POW with Devane's character who was equally having troubles adjusting back to life in the States. Jones, for his part, thought the film was decent and would later note that this was one of the first sub-genre action films that dealt with Vietnam vets coming home. He would know he would go on to play several in other projects that decade, and he really enjoyed working with Devane on set. Linda Haynes was cast as the love interest, the young girl Linda Fauché, who wore Devane's service ID when he was a POW and is now more than a little infatuated with the man when he returns home. For her part, Haynes had a brief but interesting career, playing a bunch of downtrodden women who often find themselves entangled in worsening situations. Throw in a young Dabney Coleman, who's always appreciated in films, James Best, Luke Askew, Lawrence Driscoll, Linda Blake Richards, and Charles Escamilla, and you have a real fresh face cast here who are about to descend into some bloody mayhem. The 
The film was budgeted modestly for $5 million and filmed on location in San Antonio in June of 1976. Devane has spoken at length as to how difficult the low-budget shoot was a month spent out in the Texas heat. Yeesh. When they were filming at the airport, they couldn't get the military or the Air Force to let them rent or even use footage of actual military planes, so they had to go rent a jet, which leads to the very interesting opening shots of having military members come home in full dress on a private plane. When it came to the violence, this was going to be heavy. Producer Gordon explicitly told director Flynn to go ahead, shoot that garbage disposal scene like it's open heart surgery, make it as bloody as possible. It was a task that the director complied with, but Flynn was just as shocked as anyone when the film wrapped and the MPAA returned with a rating of R for the production, and that would lead to bigger problems down the line. You see, Fox didn't trust what they were seeing come back in the dailies, and in an effort to hedge their bets, they decided to hold test screenings in San Jose, which was not only a bad idea, it would prove to be disastrous. Everything was calm for the first 25 minutes of the film, until the violence against the main character and his family occurred. At that point, the theater broke out into a riot, not figurative. As director Flynn would tell it, in a 2005 interview with Shock Cinema, we almost got killed when we previewed it. People were shocked at the extreme violence, especially the scene when the hand was ground up in the garbage disposal. The audience rose up and began to attack the film producers who were attending the screening. Producer Gordon, who loved the fact that the film was controversial and always saw dollar signs, noted that the scene there in the lobby looked like Guadalcanal which was not something most would view as a positive. William Devane summed it up when he was speaking with the AV Club in 2015. The Mexicans set the theater on fire. They were really, really down on it. Now, lest I glide past that statement, please allow me to at least put it to context so it doesn't make Mr. Devane seem wildly racist. People were shocked by the film at the screening. Some were objecting to the violence whereas the Hispanic population in attendance, as Mr. Devane was trying to reference in this very taken-out-of-context quote, at the San Jose screening, they were angered over the fact that the film's villains, who are predominantly made up of Mexican gang members, were, were causing this violence. He could have phrased it better, and yeah, he probably should have, but the results were the same. The screening was a bust. 20th Century Fox suddenly got some very cold feet over releasing this film. They wanted to pull in focus groups, talk to experts, attempt to figure out where they could make cuts to the film. But producer Gordon kept a cool head and refused to let the studio make any changes to the film. Seeing that Fox, though, was unwilling to go along with his vision, and not wanting them to shelve the project, Gordon did the sensible move. He went right back over to his old pals at AIP, who were very interested in the film, and he struck a deal. Arkoff would buy the film off of Fox, and AIP would distribute it themselves. Now, over the years, director Flynn has stated that when they initially released the film to mass audiences in 1977, they made no edits or cuts. What you get to see is what was intended. Later, though, as the years have gone by, he would tease out the fact that, well, maybe we did make an adjustment or two to that garbage disposal scene, just sort of an internal check for good taste standards. 
Regardless, Rolling Thunder was finally given a general release, and the public at large could take it in and decide if they liked it or not. But folks, jeez, you've been ever so patient with all of my rambling. How about I stop flapping my gums and we get over to that trailer? What do you say? Charles Rain, as played by Willem Devane, is returning home to his family in San Antonio after spending seven long years as a prisoner of war in the infamous Hanoi Hilton with his fellow soldiers, including his good friend, Sergeant Johnny Voden, as played by Tommy Lee Jones. Eager to get home, Rain is greeted by his family, but something seems off. His wife, Janet, Lisa Blake Richards, shows up with her good friend, Deputy Cliff Nichols, as played by Loraison Driscoll, to greet Rain. And worse, his son, Mark, as played by Jordan Gerler, was too young when Rain left for the war, so he has no memory of this strange man coming back to enthusiastically greet him. He takes all of this in with stride and rolls with it attempting to focus on building a strong relationship with his son, while tipping his hat and showing Cliff exactly how he survived his ordeal, scaring the officer with his self-imposed routine of pain. You want to know what they did? No. Sure you do. I sure you see, they had this little rope trick. Hmm? Yeah, they were kind of happy with it. What they did was, see, is they got you down on your knees in front of them, see? Like this. 
then they tied your arms behind you. See, here, here, help me out. Give me huh? Just help me out. Tie that, that arm to this one real close. Okay. Like this? That's right. Mm -hmm. Tighter, man. They did it tighter. All right. You uh, sure you want to go through this again, huh, Charlie? Yeah, of course. <laughs> sure. Go ahead and now you take on the loose ends. All right. And you pull it up in the air like you're going to take me clear on up to the ceiling. All right. Like this? All right, that's it. Mm-hmm. Now higher, man, higher till you hear the bones starting to crack. That's it. Higher! twice a day. I don't know how you took it. You learn to love the rope. That's how you beat it. That's how you beat people who torture you. You learn to love them. And they don't know you're beating them. Masochism aside, Rain is a hero in San Antonio, and the city gives him a full homecoming celebration. He's lauded for his bravery, he's commended for his survival, and he's publicly gifted a brand new Cadillac car, as well as 2,555 silver dollars, one for every day that he was held in captivity, plus an extra one for luck. And all this is presented to him by local beauty Linda Fauché, as played by Linda Haynes, the girl who wore Major Rain's ID bracelet all throughout her time in high school and while he was a prisoner of war, and who appears to be carrying a pretty serious torch for the man. All of this gets televised and makes the local news, which alerts a criminal gang made up of The Texan, Automatic Slim, T-Bird, and Malio as played by James Best, Luke Askew, Charles Escamilla, and Pete Ortega, respectively, to Rain's newfound wealth and his location. As Rain steps out to run some errands in his new car, he ends up getting spotted by Linda, who is on her way to work at a job waitressing at a local bar, and she invites Rain to come with her, have a drink, clearly flirting with the man. He does go to the bar, and he talks to her for a bit, but he's unable to properly cope with her advances, and after thanking her, he politely leaves. After checking out his son playing a baseball game, the proud Rain drives home alone, only to find that the gang is waiting there for him. Go in, Major, and have a seat. Hello, Major. Saw you on TV. You look good. You really did. You look good. We also saw him give you a whole shitload full of silver dollars. And me and the boys, we were in the neighborhood, and we thought maybe you should give us some of them silver dollars. Hmm? Now, if you'll just be so kind as to tell us where all that money is, then we can just be on our way. No, no fuss, no muss. Well, these are mean old boys. 
They can make you tell me where the money is. Rain refuses to give up the location of the money, and they begin to beat him. They begin to burn him with cigarette lighters, which causes Rain to shut down and go into his survival mode method of coping, just as he did when he was a POW. It's only when they mangle his right hand by forcing it down the garbage disposal that Rain even gives them a slight bit of satisfaction of having some kind of reaction. Making matters worse, Mark and Janet arrive home to see a mangled Rain struggling to keep conscious. Mark, wanting the torture of his father to stop, gives the gang the silver dollars they're seeking, and the Texan responds, in kind, by shooting all three of them and leaving them for dead. Rain wakes in the hospital, where Linda has been holding a vigil over him. Mark and Janet are dead, and he has survived, but now his hand is replaced with a prosthetic hook. Sergeant Voden has been coming to visit him as well, and we learn that the young man doesn't know what to do with himself, and has immediately signed back up for military service. Voden also makes it clear, the men that did this to the Major and his family, they don't deserve to live. And if the Major needs him, Voden is going to be there to help. For his part, Rain refuses to give details about his attackers to the police, which frustrates Deputy Cliff to no end. An Air Force psychologist, Dr. Maxwell, is played by Dabney Coleman, helps check Rain out of the hospital and offers his services to the Major. And while Rain puts on the facade of, of course, being willing to heal, to talk about this, as soon as he's home, he begins to craft his plans for revenge. He practices with his new appendage. He saws down a double-barreled shotgun for easier use. He discreetly sharpens his new hook. Packing some equipment, guns, and clothes, Rain swings by the bar where Linda works and asks the young lady if she would like to accompany him to Mexico making the love-struck young woman believe this is a romantic trip, and she quickly quits her job and leaves immediately with the injured man. How you doing? Oh, this is starting to get mad at you for not calling. Hey, listen, I'm going to go on down to Mexico for a couple of days. You want to come with me? When you leave it. Now. I get off at two. Why don't you stick around and have a drink? I gotta go now. What do you expect me to do? Just drop everything? Wednesday was always a slow night. In reality, their bar hopping across Mexico is a fact-finding mission. They're looking for clues about the Texan and his gang. And at first, Rain uses Linda as a pawn to distract criminals and help get information. Once she gets into a tight spot, though, with a creepy guy named Lopez, as played by James Victor, Rain, after a bit of forceful persuasion, gets a lead where he can find some of the gang members, and Linda realizes far too late that she's being used as part of Rain's plan for revenge. This does not dissuade the young lady from still helping him. During this time, Cliff is still stateside, and he's working the case, trying to figure out where the murderers have gone. And he realizes, after visiting the Rain home, that the Major has gone rogue, and he begins to attempt to track him down 
himself, not wanting to see Rain get hurt or killed in his quest for vengeance. At another bar, Rain learns where the entire gang is and subsequently encounters gang member Automatic Slim, and during a brawl that breaks out, Rain is forced to take on five men alone. The scuffle ends when the Major implants his sharpened hook into Automatic Slim's groin, forcing the man to beg for his companions to leave Rain alone, which allows Rain a hasty exit out of the bar and into a getaway car with Linda. They do fight and argue as they head back towards Texas, but they eventually bond over the time they spend traveling, sharing stories about their past. They stop for the night at an El Paso hotel, and Linda tries to talk him out of getting revenge, trying to get Rain to see that he has her, they can build a life together, and also letting him know that if he does go off, she will call the police, and she doesn't want to see him killed. We're going back to San Antonio. If you want to. How about you? I don't care if I ever see that town again. Good. Then let's go as far away as we can get. Go someplace cold. Let's go to Alaska. Well, Alaska's cold. People don't do anything but just stay inside and sit in front of the fireplace. I make love all day long. During their interlude, Cliff has headed down from Texas to Mexico to check on Rain's whereabouts, and during his questioning of Lopez, he is led on a wild chase that ends with the gang members trapping him in a dilapidated house, where a wounded automatic Slim arrives and executes the lawman personally. Rain wakes in the morning and dresses in full uniform, packing his weapons and leaving a still-sleeping Linda a large amount of money. He then drives off to the Voden home. Linda wakes, and while she finds that Rain has left her, she cannot bring herself to call the police to stop him. So she sits and cries to herself. When he arrives at Voden's, the young man is thrilled to have a mission to go on, and when Rain tells him they're going to get the man that killed his son, the soldier grabs his things and comes along for the ride, heading down to a Mexican brothel. Voden enters as if he's a paying customer, and while Rain quietly incapacitates the guards, Voden awaits his signal. Once their trap is sprung, a bloody shootout commences, with Rain gunning down gang members the Texan, Malio, and T-Bird, while Voden finds himself shooting it out with countless other gangsters that are joining into the fray. Both are seriously wounded from their assault, but Major Rain is able to have a final confrontation with Automatic Slim, dispassionately shooting the man multiple times. His vengeance now complete, the two wounded soldiers prop each other up and walk out into the night. Credits roll. (laughs) 
Yeah, where do you even start with something like this? Well, here, let's talk about the rough, or the, for lack of a better word, the so-called bad parts of this film first. Probably the greatest sin here is the fact that the story that Schrader initially had penned, that's not what we're seeing. In a 1990 Faber collection of essays, Schrader on Schrader and other writings, the screenwriter-director lamented that what we see provided here on the big screen, that's not the script he initially wrote. He takes great umbrage with Gould's changes to his story. His story was a critique of the Vietnam War, and was also a critique of racist attitudes within the country of the time. Rain was a southern fried, white trash, stock trope character. Think of him as a Dixified version of Travis Bickle, and he was working out his racism and his hate by way of slaughtering a Tex-Mex gang that wronged him. All of that was supposed to be a look at the greater concept of American fascism. And while that wasn't in the final result, from Schrader's perspective, there's a certain irony here, because when the project was taken away from him and changed, the end result was a different kind of fascist film. That said, this is an exploitation film, pure and simple. Don't delude yourselves, it's violent. In the film's defense, it's at least done in the context of a revenge story. It's a man learning to feel anything other than pain again, which from that perspective, it does work, especially since what he's replacing with pain is anger and rage. That's his transformative fuel for Major Rain's evolution. And again, in the context of the story, that makes logical sense. Now, everything I just said, it's technically correct, and while sometimes being technically right is the best kind of air quotes right one can be, I also have to admit, I'm doing a lot of shucking and jiving right now. I can only soft shoe though for so long before I have to admit, yeah, for good or ill, this film that I am recommending people see, it launches its story with the murder of a family and the violent loss of an appendage down a kitchen garbage disposal. There really isn't a pretty way to say it or to even deal with it other than, yeah, that's it. It's intense. It's disturbing. It makes sense to me that an audience of people would be wildly disturbed by it today, not to mention back in 1977. Sure, audiences who are familiar with both action and horror films, both of the present, should be able to take this film in, in stride, and they're probably not going to give it much thought at all. But you need to consider the following points. First, this was a mainstream offering where they were showing things that were not the norm for the day. Second, the concept that it's a home invasion that leads to the violent deaths of a woman and a child, those are not really considered to be common tropes for action films of the time. And when they did show up in film, and when they do show up now in film, they're often done far less bluntly and with a much softer touch. Third point, frankly, the U.S. was having a hard time in this post-Vietnam period making films that reflected veterans. 
Rolling Thunder was one of several post-Vietnam films that dealt with the violence of war returning home with the men who were sent to fight it. Standing alongside other films of the day, like 1972's The Visitors, 1974's Dog Soldiers, 1976 offered that dual punch of Tracks and Taxi Driver. And then it would continue on past this movie with 1978's Who'll Stop the Rain? The concept and the mythos around the violent veteran let loose on the home front, it's not a notion that was comfortable for many people to take in as popular culture entertainment. Why would you want to bring up something that we collectively look at as a failure? Why do you want to bring up something that's a downer? Besides, you're suggesting that there's a problem, and that would mean we'd have to address it. And isn't it easier to sweep things collectively under the rug? Of course. So, all that being said, taking that awkward reality aside, what's good here? Well, I would argue a lot. As characters go, in spite of Schrader's desires, what we have here is really solid. Rain's masochism is presented in a smart way. It's his controlled coping mechanism. It's how he survived all those years of torture. When we see that he is taken to staying out there in the workshed, where he's binding himself up and continued to having a really structured and spartan existence, that's his way of keeping things sane. He'll hurt himself first so he can control it. If I hurt me, you can't hurt me. Rain is arguably pretty even keel when he comes back. He can rationalize that his wife, especially thinking partially that he was dead, has moved on into another relationship with Deputy Cliff. He doesn't love that fact, but he understands it. He accepts it. To him, everything is about his son, Mark. That's been his real reason to keep going. That's his goal to rebuild. That is what makes him be able to come back into the world again. Cliff he can have Janet. He can go on and marry her. He could even move into the house and take over Rain's entire home. It's not his anymore, especially where he's been. That's all been made crystal clear. But Mark is his son, and Cliff has to respect that. Or else. Listen, Cliff. I hope you don't mind me saying this to you. But I'd really appreciate it if you didn't call my kid a runt. I won't. Sorry, Joe. Here's looking at you. And so, his son is his reward for all that he suffered. And when that reward is taken away by senseless violence, the dam of logic and cold habit that have been holding back Rain's own rage, that so too breaks. With that control gone, the feelings that are being held at arm's length, they come rushing back. Everything after the point of his injuries is done with a dual purpose, and Devane seemingly takes great pleasure in having every telling action mimed out before us. The casual conversations in the shed that belie the actual work of sawing off the shotgun barrel. The seemingly innocent practicing of manipulation with the prosthetic hook. 
talking to the sheriff, packing and repacking individual cigarettes one at a time using that pincer grip of the prosthetic hook hand right in front of people, only to make them believe that he's learning how to live adequately with his newfound appendage, when in reality he is training himself to load bullets into a gun. It's a fantastic visual storytelling motif, and it builds to some marvelous tension. For his part, Devane is amazing here. You can tell he quite enjoyed playing the part. In 2013, reminiscing on the role, he commented that, You don't separate yourself from the character. I mean, I've been filled with rage since I was two. You just need to tap into that feeling that you have of passive rage, because you can only be still for so long, and then you need to support that to communicate it on the screen. And does he ever? Even behind those blacked-out aviators, you get the feeling for his simmering rage, and Rain methodically begins to hunt down that gang that brought murder and mayhem into his world. Devane has gone on to do other things for sure, but this is the kind of role that makes me wish he had gotten more leading roles in both thrillers and action films. Don't get me wrong, he is a solid character actor, he's an amazing second banana, often playing villains in some fantastic films. McCabe and Mrs. Miller come to mind, Marathon Man, marvelous. But films like this one and in 1983's Testament, where he got to be a lead, they show that he is really an amazing actor, and it makes me wish that he had gotten more turns at bat. For his part, Tommy Lee Jones is equally wonderful in this film. You got a young, hungry man sporting a thousand-yard stare. He's perfect here as Sergeant Johnny Voden, a man who doesn't know what to do with himself after he comes home from the battlefield. Life has just trucked on without him, and he doesn't feel home in his own house anymore, where he's surrounded by his wife and his family, but he's just a living ghost in his own life. And his melancholy that's on display that's palpable. Oh God, when we see him at that family meal, just staring silently at his plate. Then Major Rain comes knocking, asking if he'd be interested in a little action, and Vodin just reanimates. He understands things like a mission. Those make sense. Those give him purpose. Killing is killing, and he's good at it, and he'll eagerly do so without thinking, just like he's been trained to do. I'm sorry about all this, Major. That's all right, John. I found them. Who? The man who killed my son. I'll just get my gear. does a lot of heavy lifting on her end, and to her credit, with a part that is pure B-movie fodder, she shines as an actress. I mean, 
the deck is stacked against her. She is really cast here because it's the 70s and they want a really pretty blonde to be eye candy in this level of filmmaking. And as a side character and to the story as it's presented in its final iteration, she's sort of an afterthought. Now, I blame that on the filmmaking of the time and how it was framed, but that does not take away from her skill as an actress. She works really well here. Now, I'll say this, don't think about it too hard, because the math will crack your brain, but the concept of her being this young girl who's been pining and hoping since high school that her assigned soldier would come home, and when she gets to meet him and see him surviving his POW experience, it's clear she's fallen in love with the idea of him. And then as an audience, you can actually really feel for her. I mean... Not that she would ever want tragedy to befall him or his family, but she literally gets a shot at now having this man of her dreams. This hero who she's idealized, he could be hers. And you get to see her realize just how deeply a wounded individual he is. And for her part, she still does manage to get in under his armor and make him feel something before going on to complete his bloody quest for retribution. It's because of the fact that she loves him that she can't bring herself to turn him into the police. And Hayens does a fantastic job conveying this all to us, the audience. Oh, one more thing I feel I should mention. A couple years ago, I screened this film for a friend. And we get to the end of it. He liked it. But he had a hard time wrapping his head around the concept of why an evil gang of lowlifes would go out of their way to rob a family of what seemed to be, to him, such a trivial amount of money. 2,555 silver dollars. Why would anyone do that? Now, he did follow up his, you know, incredulity with, look, look, I know they're villains, and bad guys in a movie, they don't have to have a ton of logic applied. But still... Isn't that a small amount of money? So here, let me please put this in context for those of you who don't live in the United States or for those of you who are not well-versed in numismatics. Let's assume, for sake of argument, that the city of San Antonio, they like the major just okay. They don't think all that much of him when it comes to giving him this gift. So... What they do is they give him nickel-plated 1977 S-coins. Those silver dollars are not worth a dollar. They're actually worth around $4 a coin. That would mean that box of coins he's handed has the collective total value of $10,220 in 1977 cash. And that would translate into being worth about $45,785.60 in 2021 money. Kind of puts it a little bit into perspective. But hey, since we're playing around with some funny money math here, let's just go take this a step further. Let's say the city of San Antonio, they love Major Rain. I mean, he's a war hero. Show him some respect. They went all out on this when they came to gifting him silver dollars. And so they decided to give him a box of the fully plated versions, the 1976 silver clad variety one proof coins that were available in the day. Each of those coins would be worth $17 a pop. And so, when you take that in, you have a box of 2,555 coins. That would be worth $43,435 in 1977 money. 
swap that out again for today's inflation, and you are looking at a box of coins that are worth $194,588.80 in 2021 money. Nice. Not that I would ever suggest it's ever worth robbing or killing for that amount of money, but when you have that sort of cash being publicly touted as being given to a single individual, I mean, come on, we've all heard stories of people winning the lottery and suddenly having to increase their security as unscrupulous folks start sniffing around that newfound money. Should it matter? No. But in the context of watching this story, it helps clarify to people why folks suddenly seem so fired up over a box of what seems to be only decorative coins. And hey, now you know. And now we know. And knowing is half the battle. So I can hear you wondering out there right now, how was this film received? Well, critically, it was rather awkward. When AIP mass-released this film on October 7th, 1977, the lines got drawn in the sand. Acting, for the most part, was praised, but the violence, that was the sticking point for many. The bottom line is there was very little in the way of middle of the road. People either loved this film or they hated it. Favorite punching bag of mine, Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune, rated it 3 out of 4 stars, noting, What I like about Rolling Thunder is not the predictable orgy of violence that concludes the picture, but instead what goes on before, the return of the veteran to his hometown and his disjointed family. It's the emotional violence he suffers that's far more stunning than any physical torture. Reviewer E.P. of the Independent Film Journal noted that this film is well-acted and exploitable, which will make it a big bang at the box office, while acknowledging at the same time that the story was bound to make audiences squirm. They would further go on to praise William Devane and Tommy Lee Jones before delivering a backhanded compliment to Linda Hayens, noting that she looks like a Tuesday Weld who's seen better days. But they championed her performance here, touting that she runs off with all the scenes that she performs in. Box Office Magazine came out in strong favor of the film, noting that good writing, directing, and acting places this AIP release a cut or two above the others of the genre in which the film's protagonist kills his enemies in a fit of vengeance. Variety magazine made a point to talk about the art of the film and its own creation, bouncing back and forth first from AIP to Columbia to 20th Century Fox and then ultimately back to AIP again, noting that it's easy to see why the execs were both attracted and repelled by Rolling Thunder. They ended up praising the excellent cast, they perform well but not well enough, Schrader's story is strong but not strong enough, and the violence will be too much for some and not enough for others. In summation, it neither rolls nor thunders, but with a little luck, it might stumble upon a portion of the audience that hailed Schrader's taxi driver. Of course, their two were detractors. Vincent Canby of the New York Times took umbrage with Flynn's directing, accusing him of robbing the story of any of its tension, and noting how quickly it hums along towards its climax. 
Kevin Thomas of the LA Times didn't mince his words either, stating that this was one of the most revolting exploitation pictures to come along in some time, all while questioning how POWs could be portrayed in such a poor exploitative fashion. Here's the strange thing though. Audiences still found the picture and enjoyed it. Now, AIP treated this film like any of their other B-level releases. Don't get me wrong, they wanted it to have success, but they didn't do what a larger studio would have done, a studio like Columbia or Fox. They wouldn't get out the word and heavily promote the picture. No, they would release it like they did everything else. In spite of that, Rolling Thunder was a surprise hit at the box office. It would go on to earn $130 million against its meager $5 million budget. It's quite an achievement that gets overlooked, partly because 1977 was dominated by one other film at the box office, Star Wars, which had an awkward way of making other releases seem trivial by comparison. This makes one wonder, how exactly would Rolling Thunder have done had it been promoted differently? Understandably, actor Devane has gone on record to say he felt the film could have been even bigger had it not been so poorly handled by the various studios who held it and then shuffled it off to AIP. In an October 2015 interview with the AV Club, Devane chalked up some of his and Jones's own inexperience to why the film didn't work. So then the studio backed way off, and it never got the release it would have if they'd really jumped on it and supported it. But I didn't understand how to operate in those days. I still don't know how to operate. But movie star guys would have done everything that they could to force them to release it properly, you know? And Tommy and I, we were just starting out. Rolling Thunder came and went from the theaters, and a rather strange thing occurred. It seemingly faded from the public consciousness. It wasn't forgotten, per se. Rather, the narrative around it was always couched in the hazy recollection of studio problems, it being dubbed a Vietnam revenge film, and with Schrader's own disappointment in the final results, it was generally misremembered as doing Poorly. There is a published interview between Schrader and film critic Roger Ebert in 1985, where Ebert spends a night staying up, talking and drinking with the screenwriter-director, reminiscing about his life, his career to date, and how, at the time, Schrader was promoting his film Mishima. And that's when the film critic himself dismissed Rolling Thunder as being a box office flop. It's not true. But that's where it fell years after its release. So what of its legacy today? Well, we know Tarantino has always loved this film. And as we previously have mentioned and named his short-lived video distribution company, Rolling Thunder Pictures, in spite of all the films that they would go on to release before they closed, Ironically, Rolling Thunder was never one of his own B-grade exploitation films that came out of that venture. His promoting of the film is, I think, what made it possible to have it goosed into the public consciousness to be reassessed as a film worth viewing. 
because honestly, as of this recording, the film sits at a rather comfortable position on Rotten Tomatoes, sitting with a critical score of 86% and an audience score of 78%. That's quite respectable. The film was released late on VHS, available only in the early 1990s, and then it virtually disappeared from store shelves. It was sought after by tape traders and collectors, until finally it fell under the MGM Archive series after they bought out the AIP catalog and began to offer the film to a new generation of viewers. Look, here's what I can say. I can't tell you that this film is going to change your life, nor would I argue that it's a film that's for everybody. But. If you find yourself in the mood for a picture that is a fantastic exercise in revenge, with some great performances and some explosive action, this is a film that is well worth your time. And I'll double down here, if you consider yourself to be a connoisseur of cult films or action films, this is a must-see picture. The version of Rolling Thunder screened here at the LSCE was the Burned On Demand DVD that was ordered back in 2011 from the MGM archives. Thankfully, these have now been replaced by a good, proper 2013 Blu-ray and DVD release from the great folks at Shout Factory, and they come loaded with some nice features. You get a multi-format Blu-ray DVD combo set that gives you the making of Rolling Thunder featurette, which contains interviews from William Devane, Tommy Lee Jones, Paul Schrader, stunt coordinator Billy Burton, and writer Haywood Gould. Plus, you get a still gallery full of production photos and a gang of theatrical trailers, radio and TV spots, and I would argue more fun than you can shake a hook at. And all of this can be yours for the low price of $11.99 on Amazon.com. Now remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where to purchase your films from. We just feel in this day and age it's important to continue to support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to the content we all know and love will keep releasing it to us, the consumers. And at the end of the day, isn't that really what it's all about? Getting more of what you know and love? Besides, this is a crazy tale of revenge with some amazing actors, a compelling story, and it sports cult bona fides to boot. So what are you waiting for? Get out there. Get yourself a copy of Rolling Thunder today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, if you like us, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, do that wherever you're listening to us on. Please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, comics for you to peruse. We've recently been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. 
find us there, give us a follow and a review if you please, and hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we are a part of to give us a boost in those rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes, those have an effect on the marvelous algorithms that are out there, and that makes us more searchable. And thus, we can share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there, Wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.